I said, when I moved here is when I first confronted like, what is race? And what is it, you know, to really be black and to be black in a different space? I think for me, you know, back when we moved, well, when I moved here, it, it wasn't, Edmonton wasn't as multicultural <laughs> as it is now. You could genuinely meet people from Alberta who had never seen a black Solving the race aspect, the, the racial race aspect, is isn't the silver bullet. Like there's, there's, I think just other human elements at play, which is greed and it's, it's power and it's selfishness, which I think contributes to people living in in poor condition. Hello and welcome to Design Unmuted, a podcast that centers marginalized voices in design, art and all things creative. I am your host, Divine, a landscape designer and social critic. On this first episode, we have my very good friends, Petros Kuzmo and Rumitai Zinyamba. And so I will invite them to give us a brief introduction of themselves. And um, you can talk about whatever you like. <laughs> I guess I'll go first. Uh, my name is Petros by day, I, I work as a management consultant um, at Deloitte with a focus on helping public sector institutions, and I, I do that here in British Columbia. And also, I help our partners around the world with the work that they do um, in the public sector. I also do a bit of work volunteering. I'm a director at the Hogan's Alley Society, um, an organization, a not-for-profit focus on building affordable housing and cultural spaces for people back in descent in Metro Vancouver, um, involved with some of the groups like Global Shapers Vancouver, uh, what else? Um, City Hive. And yeah, I think other more interesting non-work facts about me, I used to be a musician. And I say used to because I don't play as much as I should. I'm a cancer, so I think that actually says a lot about my personality. Um, but I'll <laughs> I'll leave it uh, I'll leave it there. Oh, and I this might actually be pertinent to the podcast. I used to uh, I'm Eritrean, and I used to live in Eritrea. Um, I spent most of my teenage years there too. Awesome. Thanks, Petros. Hey. Well, hi. I'm Rumbi. Surprised you said my full name. Hold on. Sorry, but I call my Rumbi. Um, so yeah, I my background is international development. Um, I think I can safely say I live between Canada and Zimbabwe, depending on the year, the year of the pandemic and what's going on. <laughs> but I've been back in Canada um, for about 10, 10 months now. Um, I'm working with an organization that's a coalition of international development organizations in Alberta. Um, that have overseas projects and are engaging Canadians on global issues, I guess. Um, so I, I, I manage that program. Uh, apart from that, I'm my, I mean, if I think of my identities, I'm a wife, I'm a mom to be, and I am <laughs> the Petrus's face like, what? Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's, that's me, I guess. Um, I guess, I mean, I have hobbies. I, I read a lot. I write. <laughs> and I used to be in a band, which I hated, so I left. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Rumbi. So, I mean, we all met when we were at the University of Alberta in our undergrad. And so the reason why I picked you guys is because I appreciate your critical thinking. I think you're quite eloquent and you are well traveled and curious about the world. So I really wanted to talk about this idea of 
blackness and space. And what does it mean to be black? And I made an assumption that you do identify as a black person, which I think <laughs> I'm right, correct? <laughs> I think before we go on, we need to establish that. And so like to begin, I like to kind of start like just a very casual discussion of what, what does being black mean to you? Um, especially because Rumbi, you also, your heritage is from Zimbabwe. Uh, Petros, yours is from Eritrea and kind of like how all those, how that plays into your understanding of blackness um, here, back home. And because you're so well-traveled and how, like, how, how does that affect your understanding, kind of like your perception of black identity? Rumbi, would you like? <laughs> <laughs> this is not fair. It's like, uh, you're in your back of the class and you're like, don't pick me, don't pick me. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I can start very briefly. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll kick it off. And you know, you asked the question of jokingly, you said, oh, yeah, I mean, you do self-identify as black, <laughs> clearly, right? And I think that, you know, what's interesting, you know, for, so for me, I, I was born and raised in Edmonton. My parents, they had immigrated from Eritrea as refugees. And then we had ended up moving back to um, Eritrea. And then when you're, so like when you're in Canada, you're, you're black. <laughs> but when you're, when you're, in Eritrea, you're just, you're Eritrean. You know what I mean? So yeah, like I, I'm black, obviously, because I live in, in North America. And, you know, if I see you, if I see Rumbi or someone else that looks like us, the first thing I think is, yeah, they're black too. But it's just, you know, it's very spatial. It depends on kind of where you're at and your, how your identities kind of shift in the language you use. Like I, I wouldn't, I like, I wouldn't call myself black when I'm in Africa. You know what I mean? Like I'll say, oh, I'm Eritrean. And wh what are you? Okay. You're from uh, Zimbabwe. Okay. Cool. Right. Like it's very much, it, it, like it, the language totally changes, um, and even when I'm talking to you two, right, um, where I know you folks, you know, lived on the continent and whatnot, it's weird for me to just be like, "Oh, you're black," right? Because <laughs> I know I, I know so much more. I, you know, Rumbi, I'm like, okay, you're from Zimbabwe. Like, talk talk to me about Zimbabwe. I want to learn about the culture. Like, you, you know, like black just feels like a like a weird, shallow shortcut to kind of use when I'm when I specifically when I'm talking to folks who are from the continent because I'm like I there's so much more we could like black doesn't really mean anything to me in that sense right um but when you're here you know you're struggling between you know there's 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 obviously like your own heritage you know that culture but there's also obviously a, a black and what and by black really Americanized culture that you have to kind of engage with because you're also trying to prove to other black people that you're also black. Too. <laughs> you know, it's like, a, it's a weird thing, right? Where if, 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 if I was just living in, you know, grew up in Canada, fully just, you know, engaged in Eritrean culture, that was the only kind of music I was listening, movies, films I was engaged with. And you saw me, you'd be like, dude, you're not black. Like, <laughs> you, you know, so, uh, that, that's just my attempt divine at just, uh, trying to poke holes at the question, right, of black culture and just how fraught and, and complicated that is. And, you know, that's what our policy degree taught us to do, just critique, just critique things. And, and that's the argument. Yeah. <laughs> What's your take on it, Rumbi? Um, you know, it's interesting. I think like Petros, it's very spatial for me. I'm black, definitely, but different kinds of black in different places. 
Um, that's, that's, that's how it's felt for me. And, you know, the recent whole wave of Black Lives Matter and the way it took over the world um, and not just the U.S. really made me think about that because it made me think, you know, is there a Black identity? Um, and, you know, for me, it's no. It's, it's, it's so different depending on where you are. So even when I'm Black in Canada, I'm not the same Black as someone who is Black in Canada. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's different. Um, and for me, my experience... I mean, I think I first, I became a different kind of black when I moved here. Um, and it was, people told me the kind of black I was. I was like, oh, okay, that's, you know, that's the space I occupy now. Mm-hmm. When I was home, I was a different kind of black. But I, you know, unlike, unlike Petros' experience, I was very aware of my blackness at home. And it's because I grew up in a, in a country that was very recently independent. And we were a settler colony. And so the fault lines and the structures of colonialism exist strongly till today. Um, and I grew up middle class, which meant I mixed in with the white Zimbabweans as well. So a typical classroom of mine uh, in high school had, you know, white and black in one space. But what you had was former, you know, former colonizer and, <laughs> you know, in one space existing and um, navigating and we were kids. So we weren't the colonizers, but we had, you know, or, or the, or the colonized, but we carried the legacy of it, uh, in, in so many ways. And it was very interesting, but I was very conscious of the fact that I was black in a majority black place. So we had a certain agency and a certain power we could, we could, you know, utilize. For instance, I remember in our class, we, we decided we weren't going to speak in English anymore to the white girls. Uh, we were just done. So <laughs> it was like, listen, if you want to, if you want to talk to us, just going to have to learn Shauna. That's my language. Um, and you could do that. Right. And it was, they, they were the minority and it was like, you know, you either get with it or no one's going to talk to you, um, which is a very different way of being black. <laughs> right. Uh, when you, when you think about it. Um, and you know, it's, I think the first, for me, when I moved here was the first time that I saw white people who were poor, white people who were, you know, who, who, who suffered from different kinds of, you know, marginalizations, white people. So for me, I had a very clear white is privileged, black is majority, but not necessarily privileged. When I came here, it got all mixed up. So, um, you know, for me, like I said, it's, it's, it's very where you are. When I was in London, black was different as well, um, as opposed to here. So, yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a space thing <laughs> and a perception. Yeah. Right. So then, um, so you both speak kind of about kind of your experience of blackness here versus what would otherwise be your home country. And so can you elaborate a little bit more on how, like, can you identify when that, that perception changed for you? And like, was there like a defining moment or like, did, did, did that change over time. I, I don't know, Ruby, if you're going <laughs> to... I mean, yeah, like I said, when I moved here is when I first confronted, like, what is race? And what is it, you know, to really be Black and to be Black in a different space? I think for me, you know, back when we moved, well, when I moved here, it, it wasn't... Edmonton wasn't as multicultural <laughs> as it is now. You could genuinely meet people from Alberta who had never seen a Black person. Genuinely. Um, and... You know, being a policy kid and everything we were learning, my first instinct was to shout racism at everything. <laughs> if you asked me anything about my hair, my dressing, my accent, you're racist. 
like that was my go-to. Like you have no right to be asking me. <laughs> like they were, they were a good two years of like that hardcore, like everyone around me is racist. Um, and, you know, eventually that evolved for me to understanding a bit of Canada's background, Alberta's background, understanding where people are coming from. Um, understanding that there's a genuine curiosity. Yes, there's racism. There's a genuine curiosity as well. Um, and at which point, at which point are people being bigoted and at which point, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> um, for me, it, it changed the way because I think I was expressing my, my race as, as a protest for the first couple of years that I was here. And then I got comfortable with it. And I started to, to, you know, to maybe share my experiences a bit more with people. Although when I moved to London for my master's and I met some people um, who had come from like South Africa and all of that and were like fresh into like mm. you know, the Western world, it was very like, you're one of those who allowed the racism to carry on because you guys excuse everything, you know? So I had a real confrontation with some people where I'm like, dude, chill. Like, it's not always racism, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just yeah, that's just so interesting. I, I, Rumi, just even hearing about your upbringing in Zimbabwe, like I didn't quite appreciate um, that that kind of nuance of like how you had so many folks in your class who who were white, and there was just there was just like that different dynamic. And you know, for me, when I went to Eritrea, like I was at an international school, so there was a there was that huge privilege. So our our classes were quite mixed, but it was just like it, there that there wasn't that kind of dynamic that existed. And even though we were colonized by the Italians, that was you know by the time I was living in Eritrea, that had you know two uh, you know nearly you know, a, a decade had passed and, and whatnot. And and oh, not even decade decades had passed because we had just gotten um, we had fought off as an independence war from Ethiopia. So, so it was, it was very different. Right. So I, I actually, I think that's so interesting. Um, but I, you know, for me, um, I remember being as a kid moving to Eritrea and, and living there at least for the first couple of years and, and like coming with a strong sense of what I would like, I, I was just a kid. And I remember being like, Oh, I, I like to skateboard and I, I would skateboard and, I was, I was just like an alternative black, I guess you could say at the time, you know, you know what I mean? Like back then, you know, mid two thousands or uh, 2010s, I think, think about the kind of music that was really popular, like Nelly, like Ludacris, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like R Kelly, like awful human oh, being now, but, you, but like that was the yeah, kind of, when you think about who is the archetype black man in in like western culture as a kid those are like the kind of guys that you look up to so unless you were wearing air force ones you know clean white air force ones baggy pants you know sagging your half of your ass showing baggy shirt like then you weren't really black and so i i didn't really quite conform to that per se like i would try to engage with it but but i, I was always different so i remember even going to eritrea like I would skateboard and people would just like, you know, you get the common, common you know, remarks of, ah, oh, you're kind of white. Like you're, you're, you're not quite Eritrean because you obviously didn't grow up here, but you're also not quite black because you don't look like Nelly and you're really bad at basketball. Right. Um, so, so that was always interesting because you, you'd have young Eritrean men who, again, like that was the media that we'd be consuming from the West who would like, that's kind of what you would try to dress up as, right? Like that's who you would try to emulate. 
Um, so I always remember from a very early age of just like being uh, a young black man. It's just like you, I never always felt like I fitted in. I think nowadays the spectrum of like black identity um, is very wide and, and there's like a lot of different ways for people to feel like they can express themselves in different ways and still feel black. You know, for instance, there is this festival called Afropunk Festival, which is just like punk music for black folks. And it's just totally different. And I'm like, if I knew it, something like that, it existed back then, I wouldn't have felt so awkward engaging with rock music, being a skateboarder, just being that kind of guy, right? As opposed to just the weird, weird kid. And, um, so yeah, I, I think I remember from a very early age thinking about my identity and race and, and all of those facets, but it wasn't in relation to like white people. You know what I mean? It was always in relation to other black people. And, and that, that for me has always been, um, something kind of top of mind, right? Because, uh, I, th I think that has always been the tougher part. Cause of course you'd always get instances of where you felt like folks were racist towards you or whatever else it is. But I think the, the instances that you remember most that perhaps sting the most is when you, you, you're kind of navigating and dealing with these issues of, of what it means to be black or African or Eritrean and remarks are made by other folks who kind of question the legitimacy of it or whatever else it is. Um, so yeah, so yeah, that, that, I think, you know, going back to my early teens, that's, that's, those are kind of like the first instances that, Right. I'll just jump back in. Um, Divine, something Petro said made me think about early teens as well. And I guess, yeah, like we said, Petro, I guess we've never talked about what it's like to be like black in a former settler colony, <laughs> you know, which got mm -hmm. independence in the 80s. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, if I think of high school, I think it must have been my second last year of high school that we started to recognize the racism in our in our school, mm. in our school system. Because what happened with us is the schools that we went to as middle-class kids were formerly white schools. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and at independence, you know, from independence onwards, they slowly became more mixed. But the, the structure of the school and the institution of it was, was white. Mm. And we were just occupying these spaces as blacks, but these spaces weren't made for us. Um, so, you know, you still had teachers there who had taught in the all white phase, some of the, even just simple like rules in the book, like even school uniform rules or whatever, they were geared to white girls, like, you know, your hair rules, all those kind of things. You know what I mean? It's like, no, our hair doesn't do that. So like, what, yeah. what's the rule for hours? <laughs> you can't tell me hair must be combed, you know, shoulder length. It doesn't, it just stands. So like, what's the plan? You know what I mean? So, um, you know, we started to, to feel it a lot in my second last year. And I think for me, what that represented was, even if you were in a majority black space, you could still be under white power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even if we were the vast majority, um, it, it, it's all about who has the power. And that's what you'll see in places like South Africa, Zimbabwe, in some ways, Namibia, Botswana, it's small minorities of whites who are still in many ways running systems, running institutions. Yeah running how you think about yourself and everything. So mm -hmm. it's, it, it's so fascinating. And I always find that it's, it's hard to tell 
it's it's hard to really kind of like better understand yourself without it always being in contrast to other people. So this is my way of saying that I'm learning a lot about myself and my experiences because you know if I think about Eritrea, like you know for us the Italians, the Italian colonize uh, you know colonization ended uh, what 40s. 50s mm-hmm. and then for us we were dealing with ethiopians colonizing us <laughs> so it's a very different dynamic right where i, th- I think for i mean like the the legacy of italian colonization and you know we were in then it, you know british caretaker rule for a little bit like it's still very much felt today like you can walk in downtown Osmar and still see the legacies of it we have this our education building is just it literally from the outside of it, the design is a massive F, but on its back, you know, and then there's like a little, you know, F for fascism, obviously for Mussolini. Because, and then, you know, there's a little thing where, uh, you know, a viewing deck where he's supposed to kind of go on and you, go, you can see like the whole downtown. It has this massive road in the middle of it. So you can have these big parades like, it, you know, you still see all those impacts. We used to have gondolas that would go down from the capital city to the beach city that got dismantled by the british that so driving sucks still but you know there's all these things um but in either case um you know i think for 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 eritreans like very much obviously you know the the legacy of italian uh, colonialism was awful um but for us you know the there's there's also like a strong strength of, of kind of um the colonialism that came from our brethren, the, mm-hmm. the Ethiopians, right? So there's, yeah. there's this, you, you know, it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's complicated, right? Like it, and it, for instance, it's interesting. So for instance, uh, go to like nearly any black barbershop and you'll always find a portrait of Haile Selassie, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you, the Eritreans or even let's say some of the Somalians or whoever, they'll look at that and they'll be like, man, <laughs> Like this guy is garbage, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not trying to argue with my Jamaican barber right now about this. Like, I'm not trying. <laughs> you're cutting my. You're the one with the blade right now. I, I'm counting on you to like do a good job I'm with this. Blade. Like, <laughs> I'm like, you got to know when to engage and pick your battles. But all this to say that, for our experience, you know, they're they're at least from my experience, so much of it wasn't centered on on. Um, thinking about italian colonialism even though it, it it's it, it's more than that right and i think that it, it's funny i and this is just a, an anecdote from my own experiences like i yeah I, I just they're like i think with yeah this is this is where i'm getting like uneloquent here maybe i should like stop but there's a there's a, a certain kind of skepticism that i think um not skepticism but like I, I think for some black folk, almost like any other black folk can do no wrong. You know, there's a, there's a certain sense of like, of, of like a utopia just can't exist. And this is kind of one of the, the questions, um, divine that we, you know, we were kind of thinking about or that you drafted of, you know, if we just have it black folks, it's enough. Like it's, you know, it, it's good enough and, 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 and we will be good, but that's not, that's not the case right there's no there's no black utopia that exists just if if it's only populated with black folks like i think there's there's so many more elements to kind of tackle um there and 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 yeah like anyways it's 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 not simplistic i I, that's a good that's a good uh 
segue into kind of like that question that I, I had is there's been I saw on the news that there were some people who were kind of the a group of black people in the United States who kind of got together, bought some land to kind of build this black community as a response to the discrimination and the racism that um, black people are, are experiencing, have been experiencing for years and years, kind of as a solution. And for me, I have mixed feelings about that. And I'd like to kind of hear um, what your thoughts are about this idea of an exclusive black space as specifically as a response to the racism that um, people face in this kind of like specifically, I guess, North American context or anywhere um, or maybe anywhere. Like what, what are your what are your thoughts about it? Like, are, like, are there any merits? And yeah, let's just kind of like unpack that. I have several thoughts about that. Um, I get where the sentiment is coming from. It's in line with the return back to Africa mm. sentiment, right? Um, and we're just like, don't come here. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> but I get the need, especially for American Blacks, to, to in their mind have a place where this wasn't their story. You know, have a place where they come from, where where it's, you know, it's kind of utopia in that sense. Um, I was just, uh, I was telling you guys about this book club that I'm in. Um, we just finished reading Homegoing by Ya Gyasi. Um, and there's a quote in there that I thought about when I, when I, when I thought about this question, um, divine, um, and it's a character, um, who's now in the States, um, you know, during post, post slavery, trying to kind of figure it out. And it says that for him, the problem with America wasn't segregation, but the fact that you could not, in fact, segregate, you know, he'd been trying to get away from white people for as long as he could remember, but, you know, he couldn't. And for me, you know, that's what this question is. Racism isn't people. It's a, it's a, it's a structure. It's a system. You know what I mean? You could carve out whatever piece of land and make your town in the U.S., but you're still in the U.S. The laws, the, the structures, you know, <laughs> no matter what, um, the policing, it's all run from a central power that is inherently against you. And I, and I think it might feel nice to be surrounded by people who look like you. You might get rid of the microaggressions, perhaps, um, but at the core of it, you won't get rid of the structure of it. Um, you know, and that's, you know, in that North American context, that's how I feel. In terms of when I think of Africa, some of the worst experiences that Black people in, you know, who are Zimbabwean are having are in South Africa mm. um, with, 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 with xenophobic attacks, right? People are being burnt and, you know, killed. And, you know, I know a lot of people use this as a, you see black on black crime as a, as a bigger thing, but I'm tempted to feel like black people are oppressed everywhere. And I, I don't know, I don't want to delve into why or how it became that way, but I, like, I, I, I leaning towards you, Divine, you, you can't make an all black society. And I guess it's also the thing that blackness is nuanced within itself. There are power structures in blackness. Um, so you can't just say black, like who, <laughs> you know what I mean? And can those different types of black people coexist peacefully? Um, you should read Homegoing, you know, it, it, it delves into the issue of the complicity within the Gold Coast. Mm 
in the slave trade, for instance, mm-hmm. um, which is a difficult topic to talk about, but it shows you that black people were, were enslaving and trading each other for centuries before, you know, when the British came, they just found those fault lines and exploited them to a much greater degree. But it wouldn't be utopia. Humans are humans. And <laughs> I think of our xenophobic issue in Southern Africa, it's power. South Africans have power right now because they are the powerhouse in the region, but they weren't pre-94 and they were coming to our countries and it was a different power dynamic, right? So it's there's power, this nuance in blackness. Yeah, I um, yeah, I think that's very interesting because I, I agree that like, um, you know, on, on the question of folks wanting to set up their own separate community and, and they purchase all this land, uh, I, I think that's cool. I, I think a, a large challenge is is like wealth ownership, right? And and I get the point, Ruby, you, you make really well of kind of they can still set up their own community within the United States, but it still is the United States in which they're operating under um, – you know, the structures and institutions in a country that is systemically racist itself. I, I, I get that point. Um, but is it, I, I think the other point that I want to add on here is about why it may not be the, the silver bullet is that I think outside of race, you know, there's a lot of, uh, if, if, like, if, if you were able to solve the race aspect of like, okay, it's, a, it's just a black community. There are other issues that that could go wrong if, if not solved, and I think if you know what, if we think of like the core tenets of like colonialism, which is more than just you know superiority, which is the racial aspect, but there's just there's greed as well, um, and and uh, those power structures. You could you could have just a you know a black only town where let's say a small percentage of the people are the ones who only own the property. And everyone else is just paying these ridiculously high rents and, and whatever, and, and, and whatever else it is just to be able to live there. And you could still have unfair institutions. So, so race doesn't quite solve everything. I think there's, there's other aspects to kind of consider within the kind of frameworks that people operate in, how wealth is distributed and what those inequities kind of look like. So, so that's the, that's the point I want to raise, you know, speaking as, so, but I, I do think that's such. I think that's a fat, like a really interesting concept though, of folks who are trying to take agency and like purchase land itself and 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 spur some kind of community. I, I think that's I think that's fascinating. Um, but Rumi, to, to, yeah, I, I really found um, the point you had made uh, fascinating as well. I, like I, I think I often think of maybe as an Eritrean, I think about Ethiopia too much, <laughs> right? <laughs> Because, because so like for for you know for us we we often look to them as like an oppressor uh, you know in the past and you know if you think about the Otomo people as well in Ethiopia where there's a huge uprising you know they would also say that they're they're oppressors as well and you know what makes Ethiopia such so unique is like it was never colonized right granted it it faced colonial pressures in terms of their fought wars with various colonial countries and, and what have you, but you still found that, and it still persists with numerous challenges, not saying that it wasn't influenced by the West, of course, development programs, whatever else it is, there's other factors at play. Um, but I, the point I'm trying to make is that solving the race aspect, the, the racial or the, or the race aspect is, isn't the silver bullet. Like there's, 
there's I think just other human elements at play, which is greed and it's it's power and it's selfishness, which I think contributes to people living in in poor conditions. And and we can't kid ourselves into thinking that if we just simply have um, a community. Uh, a, a, a country just full of black folks, uh, free even of a colonial legacy that we can get it right. There's still a lot of other things that we can't um, lose our eye on or else we risk just becoming, um, you know, really unequal societies um, or ones that aren't ideal. Uh, I, I don't know what you think about that, but I guess that's maybe a skeptical take <laughs> on it, but. Yeah, I, I would add to, to, to Petros's point. I think, we can't undo the history that has happened to us. Of course, yeah. Blacks have either been enslaved or colonized in some form around the world. And I think we inherited, took on, took in a lot of that. The mm-hmm. racial, the oppression. We we learned oppression. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, and I see that at home in that mm-hmm. the faces of the people who lead us may be black now. Yeah. But it's no different from when, <laughs> you know what I mean? The experience of the oppressed black in Zimbabwe yep. is not very different under colonization as now. Mm-hmm. Um, because blacks who are in power took on a power that they learned from a colon, you know, mm-hmm. from a colonizer. That's the form mm-hmm. of power they took on. They didn't dismantle that kind of power or mm-hmm. that kind of structure. They just took it on and put black faces on it. Um, and I think worldwide, there you have instances of that. I mean, even within, within black peoples and the Americas as well, it's, it's really different, you know, like even within the slave period, they were different kinds. You were treated differently if you had a different skin tone, if you had a different, you know what I mean? And those things we inherited and, and I think we can't shake that easily and we'll carry them wherever we would set up our little utopia. <laughs> you know, we would, we would carry things that we... are just going to need a lot of therapy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I'm doing so much, so many wrongs. Yeah. I, I want but, to kind of like keep the conversation going, but like kind of look at this, these issues of, uh, of racism and um, ideas of blackness, black identity, black culture, when it comes specifically to space. Rumbi, earlier when you were speaking about um, your experience uh, in the schools that you were going to, you mentioned something like you said, these spaces weren't made for us. And I want to kind of like, have you guys talk about your experience of physical space. Um, In your experience, uh, whether it be back home here, places you've traveled, as as it relates to kind of your identity, I want you guys to kind of like talk, talk and reflect about your experience of, of space as a, as a racial person and whether, like, whether or not there, there are differences in the perception of what a black space is. I, I, as someone who sits in an organization that's trying to create black spaces, I feel like I should have a very eloquent answer. (laughs) (laughs) You are not speaking on behalf of your organization. (laughs) Yeah, I know, but I feel like I should have one, but I, I, I truthfully think that this is, this is one that I I need, um, I need to think more about and and chew more on it. Um, and, and we'll probably arrive at a eureka moment 
you know, 24 hours from now <laughs> and call you up divine with my insights. But yeah, I think, I think that's a really good question. I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm not quite sure. Maybe if Ruby says something, um, I'm not sure either. I mean, I feel like I think it was a long question. Maybe we can unpack it a little bit. That's my bad. Okay. Um, maybe let's start about your experience as a black person in different spaces, be it your your workplace, your home, um, your schools, uh, places where you go for for having fun, uh, the streets you walk on. Um, do you feel that you, you face any sort of discomfort, discrimination? Do you feel like this, like, you know, like I'm really going back to that statement you made earlier, Rumbi, when you said the space, the spaces weren't made for us. Do you feel like mm. there are spaces where you feel like they're more made for you? Some that aren't. And what about those spaces? Um, make it more, comfortable to feeling like it's made for you or not? I guess um, my, my struggle with your question, Divine, is, is you you think in a physical sense. <laughs> you tend to think very abstract and very... <laughs> you know, so when you tell me to think of I'm like, as in the walls of my apartment building, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, um, it's No, just a feeling. So it doesn't have to be necessarily... Yeah. Um, for me, you know, so like I said, I've been back and forth between Zimbabwe and Canada. And um, when I moved back to Zim this last time, um, I moved back in 2017, um, I really didn't want to come back here. Hmm. And, you know, I, I to be honest, I had to be brought back kicking and screaming, um, you know. Um, and, you know, the country, my country kind of shut down, so I had to. But... One of the things was I've never felt, I've never felt at home here. I've never, I've never felt arrived, <laughs> if you can say that. Um, I've never felt like I can just let go and, you know, the laugh that comes from the bottom of your belly as yeah. opposed to like <laughs> the, the, you know, really, <laughs> I've, I've never felt that. And when, when I'm home, I feel that regardless of the poverty, regardless of, you know, the way that the space is so difficult to navigate. Um, I struggle with feeling that here. And I don't know if it's because, you know, in a way, yes, this country wasn't built for people like me. <laughs> it really wasn't. Um, you have to, you have to take your space in it. You have to, you know, you have to occupy your space and be known and, you know, and it's, and it's a lot harder than at home where I can just sort of ease in. Um, when I think about my workspace, it's very interesting for me. So not the physical space per se, but the space. So I work in international development, like I said. And again, I would use my phrase again. That is a sector that was not built for Black people to participate. Mm -hmm. You were supposed to be the recipients, um, quiet recipients far away um, <laughs> of this of this entire sector. And then years later, you know, years after this whole international development project was made, you have a black diaspora who comes and also wants to work in the sector because we want to be connected to home. But this sector wasn't created for us. It's a sector that others. So I'm confronted every day with, I must call people like me other, <laughs> you know, in order to be understood by my colleagues. I must think of, you know, people who are essentially like my family as, <laughs> you know, I must think of them as, as donor recipients, you know, and I must, you know, 
bring them, reduce them down to indicators and, and, and targets. It's, it's, um, and we've been going through a whole, since the whole Black Lives Matter thing happened, a whole re-examination of the sector. And, you know, for the first time ever, about a month ago at a conference I organized, I was able to say to a Zoom room of white people, this sector is racist. <laughs> it is inherently racist in how it was created. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, and it's, it's, it's got a legacy of racism that it's been carrying across, across oceans <laughs> for a really long time. And it's racist here for us who are working in it as a space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? I think one of my most interesting experiences was when I first started working in the sector. Um, and, and I have a feeling I was hired because they needed, they, 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 they wanted the diverse, mm-hmm. um, you know, face. Because you can't really call yourself, you know, the international development, whatever, whatever, you know, coalition. And there's like no <laughs> person of color on it. And I have a feeling that that's what got me through the door. But they were very disappointed to find out I wasn't one of those blacks. Explain <laughs> <laughs> that. that. What, what does that mean? I didn't have a sad story, black. Like, right. you know what I mean? In the sense that I wasn't a World Vision recipient when I was at home, I didn't come from a refugee camp. Um, and you know what I mean? And that's, that's the kind of black that they, that my sector or African anyways, that my sector interact with most. But here I was and I was like, no, I went to the London School of Economics. I went to a private school. Um, <laughs> I went to the U of A. I'm educated and I'm here and I have opinions. And it was like, not quite the kind of black, you know. So even when I meet like people in the sector, they're like, "Oh, you you know, Zimbabwe, you you know, you must have done a lot to get out." I'm like, "Oh, what a plane ticket!" Came yeah. <laughs> on over, you know what I mean? <laughs> so um, I think I've gone through this learn co-learning with my colleagues in the sector in Alberta, where it's like I I, I forced them to to allow me to carve out the space that I, that I wanted mm-hmm. and how it looks like. And it's been hard. And there are times when I'm still like, why am I in this sector? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's a difficult space for me that I'm still, I remember when I went to LSE because I was studying international development as well. And I think the first week I called my dad and I was like, you have to get me out of here. This is ridiculous. Like this was not, it's a program that is not created for blacks. Mm-hmm. It's just not. Um, we were in this program and there was one black prof in the entire Oh my God. In the entire yeah. department, the entire international development. There was one black prof, bless his soul, he, he passed a few months ago. So I know now there's none. Yeah. <laughs> like, there really isn't. Um, we were being taught about our countries by Americans and British and Germans. Um, and in ways that were so condescending and ways that were so clear, like, I don't know what to do with you Africans in the room because I didn't know you would be here. So I'm just going to keep teaching. <laughs> The way I'm supposed to teach and y'all just catch up. Like, <laughs> you yeah. know, I wanted to leave. I wanted to run away, but you know, it's, it's been interesting for me. But anyways, I could go on. It was, it yeah. Was- so I, I finally came up and answered your question, but I also want to, um, pick up something that you had mentioned, Ruby, which is making me think a lot about, um, class, which is something that I don't think we really talk that often when we talk about. Black identity and black experiences here in North America. It's very easy for us to talk about racism. It's not actually easy for us to talk about classism within, um, you know, our black communities and whatnot. But in either case, to answer your question, Divine, um, if I just think about 
black spaces here um, in Canada, which I very much consider my home, you know, by virtue of me spending most of my life here and, and being born here. Um, I think of just the simplicity of honestly being in a space where there is um, a lot of black people brings me like, a, it, it brings me a lot of joy. It, and it sounds really simple, but it, it's, it's just seeing, <laughs> seeing more folks who kind of look like you um, uh, that, you know, you know, there is a bit of a shared experience. It, I think it does, it does a little something, not to say that I don't, that, that I want, I'm not trying to say I'm, I'm wanting to be in a space exclusively like that. I don't think that's um, what I'm yearning for per se, but, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll tell you like two little stories. First is um, barber shops. I don't, I don't know. Also, I, I, it's funny. I was talking to uh, a black a Jamaican female friend of mine about this and she didn't quite appreciate like the, the hoops that us black men have to jump through for barbershops. I that, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. And then I'll tell you because <laughs> also, I, and I don't know if I think most black men are maybe like me, like I'm very picky. I think there's only five people in my life. I think you've mm. cut my hair for the most part, you know, there's, there's, and, and, you know, there's, there's only like, once I have a barber shop in a city, that's all I'm sticking with. That's it. You yeah. Know, that, it's that, and it's not even just the shop. It's the guy who come. Yeah. My hair yeah you follow the guy. It's only whoever the guy, the first guy who cut my hair, I'm like, even if you did a crap job, I'm thinking you're going to, you're going to pick it up. You're going to figure out the shape of my head and you like, <laughs> it's complicated. no matter how many tries you're going to figure it out, but I'm stuck with you now. We're married. That's it. <laughs> um, but in either case, um, I have this barbershop in, in Vancouver that I go to and it's a pain. Like in the past, uh, barbershops are, are notoriously terrible in that like to, there's no like appointment system, you know, like you show up and, and it, and I remember in Edmonton, it was like this Calgary was like this, you show up, you take a number and you just sit there and it's like, okay, plan out for missing like half of your entire work day just because like honest to God, just because, you know, you don't know if it'll be an hour or how long, um, if you miss your spot, you're going to miss it. So anyways, always terrible experience. Look, there's this one shop in Vancouver um, where, uh, you know, that if you, there's this barber I knew, he's like, you know, give me a call. I'll set it up. You know, I'll just charge you a fee to kind of make an appointment, which is amazing. But it was still, you're calling by phone. It wasn't like 21st century. Like it was still very 20th. In either case, pandemic happened. And to now make an appointment at the barbershop, they actually have an online system, you know, so you, you go up, you're scheduling your time because they're trying to re restrict the number of people who go in the shop. So you, you walk in there, it's not as busy as it used to be, right? Because they're trying to be smart about traffic. And I was at, I was talking to Barbara and I was like, man, I'm so happy that you guys got this system. Like, this is just amazing. I can, I can plan out my life. I know it's not like half a workday commitment. Like I can, I can just figure it out in and out. It's like, how are you liking it? He's like, yeah, it's okay. It's just, he's like, the challenge now is just like, there's no sense of community <laughs> in a barbershop, right? Because he, he's like, what would happen was, yeah, sure. You'd have a million guys wait around watching basketball or whatever else is on TV. Just kind of, they'll bring their kids. They're talking on the phone. They might have like a chit chat with one another. Someone pops by the barbershop. You know, the guy's like halfway cutting your hair and then he's engaging in a conversation with some dude who yeah. just popped by, you know, and at that moment you're like, dude, just finish the haircut. But <laughs> there was a, there was a certain sense of community that even if you weren't directly engaging in it you were still basking in this warmth of just like being with right. black folks um 
just hearing the conversations, laughing. There's just an openness. There's a shared understanding, whether you're a Caribbean, whether you're from the continent, whether you spent all your life just here growing up in Canada. There is there was there was something else by which, you know, there was like a strong connection. And that always meant a lot. And I remember, you know, visiting, uh, I think it was Edmonton. I must have been now like a year ago or so and walking at city center. And I remember being shocked. I was like, I don't remember seeing this many black people just like all in one go. <laughs> and to be yeah. fair, Edmonton, we have a fair amount of black folk, at least relative yeah. to Vancouver, where 100%. you don't see as many concentrated pockets. I just remember being like, Dude, okay, I see a lot of East African brethren. Like this is, this is cool, man. And, um, and yeah, that, that just brings a certain kind of joy in terms of, black spaces it's it's just more so just finding spaces where i can find black folk um mm-hmm. but so that that's my attempt at trying to answer your question divine but i wanted to pick up something ruby on, on what you were talking about which i think what's so interesting from just the black communities here in, in canada and north america you have folks who were let's say you know numerous generations born here in canada their families have been here for a long time. That's, a, I would say, a certain type of identity culture that exists. You have folks who are maybe newcomers for the Caribbean, and then you have folks who are newcomers from um, from the continent. And even within the newcomers from the continent, there are those who are refugees, and then there are those who, um, who have a certain kind of different class, whether it was an educational background of school. And I think that's something I'm always very conscious of mm-hmm. and about how that informs our worldviews, how we engage with the world differently, um, right? Because, you know, Rumi, I know, like, you, you, your family's smart. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, your brother, Chaka, he's brilliant. I know you're, you're uh, I, I remember uh, Divine and, uh, you know, like, and I hung out with him and he was just telling us interesting stories about his experience getting a PhD in Edmonton and just how, like, harrowing the story <laughs> was. I'll just, I'll just interject. A master's. I'm going to beat him to go. Oh. <laughs> Send the record straight. No, 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 no. He was talking about your dad's experience getting your dad's experience. Yeah, we all know he doesn't have a PhD. Come on now. Yeah, yeah, no, no. But your dad's experience of, of get, like getting his PhD and, yeah. and, and how even for my dad, when he, he went to the U of A as well, um, got his chemistry degree, whatever else it is. I just think it, it, it makes such a big difference um for for our upbringing because because you know before management consulting i used to do post-secondary education advocacy work and a big thing that we would always try to tell politicians is that the biggest determination of whether you go to school or not is whether your parents have a degree like like forget money like on like the single biggest influence is like if your parents have a degree there's a strong likelihood you're going to be getting a degree as well and that degree probably is one of the most influential things in shaping your your life in terms of wealth, in terms of the connections that you're going to have, in terms of world outlook. Like education just plays such an important role and it's such a massive differentiator. And um and yeah, I, I say this because um I think I think when we talk about black identities and, and black communities, we, we don't really talk about uh class in that way. You know, like for you know, for me in Eritrea, we were in Eritrea, we were really well wealthy. Like growing up in Eritrea, we had a, a wealth like what you would consider in Canada like a wealthy experience. And that totally changed the way. And and then coming here in Canada, it's like, okay, you're you're middle class and whatever else it is, and then you you work your way up. Mm-hmm. And um 
that that just totally plays a different way role and i i just i, I feel the need to mention that because i don't i don't feel like it's talked a lot about mm-hmm. and and i think it it totally changes um yeah. it, it changes a lot yeah we've, we've strayed from your space question but yeah the the, the class i think that like, like what you're just saying the class question also it, it influences how black people here interact with each other um for instance within my within the Zimbabwean community here there are tensions depending on how you grew up at home and what space you occupied at home and it it, it carries over here in ways that surprised me um but I guess it would surprise me because like what Petra said I did grow up privileged so it was not something that I had to think about um, but I remember when I first moved here, I was quite surprised at some of the like hostility I was getting from 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 Zimbabweans. Yeah, oh. I thought it would all be like, oh yeah, you know, Zimbo for your life. Like it's <laughs> you know, but a lot of it was how did you come here? Did you guys just oh. pay? You know what I mean? Like yeah. the difference between people who struggled their way here and people who just came. And what Yep. It means to have left people at home, right? There's people here who are working solely for for people at home to survive. And there's others who are able to to just live their lives and flourish. You know what I mean? And yep. don't have, they're not carrying that baggage. And yep. I've come to appreciate that a lot more. Um, there's a saying in our language here, which says, um, it's Heathrow Mayans and Lisa, which means that if you cross Heathrow, you all become the same once you get here. Like you could have, you could have, I mean, before we all come to Heathrow, so that's like, but I mean, you know, you, you could have grown up however you wanted there, but when it comes to here, nobody has a house when they get here. Nobody, like you're all just in the struggle, right? Um, and I have to believe that, but as, as, as I've come to experience, you know, being Zimbabwean here with us in Zimbabwe, it's, it's, there's, there, there are tensions and there are hostilities. Um, but you know, even cross cross Africans who are here, um, I married um, Divine's nephew, but um, <laughs> I married someone from a different culture to mine and a very different background and very different experience of 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 home. And you know, one of the one of the interesting parts of our marriage has been how we talk about home and returning to Africa. I'm just like, let's do it. He's just like, absolutely not. You know, yeah. um, and it's because Africa for him was 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 refugee camps and yeah. and war and you know what i mean whereas africa for me was i was in a majority and i was privileged and i had you know i had permanence i grew up in the same house all my life you know i that, that's the house i go to so when i think of home i'm very solid i know what i'm talking about i know the address i know like i can picture how i'm going to go from the airport to home <laughs> you know and it's comforting and it's and it's where i belong whereas for him it's a very different experience so um it's been the interesting part of the marriage from bringing our families together and to understand right <laughs> each other across across that different experience of home and space. So. That's, yeah, that's so interesting because I find yeah the I think the whole returning from home thing is such an interesting question to ask the different Black folks. I think you'll generally find maybe that for folks who haven't lived on the continent that. There, there's a romantic, you know, the ro- romanticizing that idea of a return, come back to home, wherever that may be. And then for those who left it, you know, there's the camp of kind of like, oh, the, I see the opportunity. Like, I know the opportunities are abound there. You know, just we, we got a couple of road bumps, a.k.a. governments, <laughs> like <laughs> dictatorships and yeah. and whatever else, and, you know, a couple. But, you know, beyond that, there's an opportunity there. And I think. There are those like myself who 
I'm like I'm not I'm not keen on on returning because I, I I again I, I just see yeah at least within the air train context that I I there's a, a realization that I think the home is for me like a, a big part of I I can't ignore or dismiss the fact that Canada is home for me but that I have such a hard time like being there I'm like I, I'm I'm realistic you know I because my dad was and still is. You know, he has this um, idealized. He he he's always been very motivated. Of like, I he's like, I know there's an opportunity in Eritrea. Like, I I can see it, I can taste it. I just it's not quite there yet, but I know. And and then you know, my my mom, she's kind of like, why are you? Why are we struggling like that? Like, <laughs> why? Are, like like let's be realistic. There, there's a, there's almost like a let's just be realistic. Mm-hmm. What is the state of the government? The state of the economy? You know, is there possible for us to, to drive change within those kind of difficult contexts and environments without a bigger change needing to happen, which is at like the top level? So, so yeah, there, there's a certain kind of realism I have of like, I, I can't see the opportunity just because, uh, you know, anything short of like, you know, like overthrowing or whatever else it is. I, I don't know. Frankly, it's just, it's, it's, it's hard to see. Um, it's hard to kind of envision uh, opportunity, but but yeah, I, I and, but it's even interesting, even within my own Eritrean uh, diaspora network. You know, friends of mine, we grew up in Eritrea, but then they're all kind of living all over the world. I have a bunch of folks in London that I would hang out with when when I was studying there as well, or friends in the U.S. You know, it, it's kind of it's, it's the same two camps. There's a set, set of folks who are just kind of like, let's be real. Like what's going to happen there? And then there's a set of folks who are just entrepreneurial. There's a sense of like conviction that no, it's it's going to turn any moment now. And uh, yeah, I've, I've played with that all my life because I've seen my dad. He he lived in Eritrea like when we were growing up in Canada because he's there. There's this there's a sense this this conviction that he um, that that it's going to turn any moment. And and I want to believe it and I and I want to support it. Um, but there's also the part of you that's kind of like, don't, you know, I, I don't know if I can hold my breath on it, um, but I know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause I, I'll, I'll just pass out. I, I feel like, um, well, you know what, on, on, on this note of being realistic or not, I'd like to now enter the part where we're not being realistic and ask you to be idealistic. As, like, as I said, this is, um, envisioning new stories. Mm. And so as a kind of like a, the last question that I would like to ask, or maybe the last couple of questions, is just a really fun activity where I ask you to close your eyes and just kind of think and envision what, after this discussion that we've had about kind of like these different struggles of like, what is Black? Is, it, is there such a thing as Blackness? Is there such a thing as like a Black culture? You can hold that. You can defy it. Um, but I also want... To, for you to be able to kind of speculate and imagine a space where you'd feel like it's made for you as a black person, a place where you feel comfortable, safe. You feel, you talked about feeling a lot of joy, Petros, when you're in barbershops and surrounded by black people and just kind of throw out some words of what those spaces are like, what feelings do they have specific smells like, what kind of things are you doing? Uh, is this space here? Is it on the moon? Like, how big? Like, just 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 play for for a minute. Throw out some things and kind of envision this world that would potentially be made for us. 
mine uh mine is very tied to language mm-hmm. um a space where i would i would speak my language um freely i think some of the best times i had working at home in the last two years was being in an office and speaking in shona and not working in english that that was mm-hmm. that was something for me so there's this language there i think for me like i, I like it's easier for me to just think of like when i think of even the, the question of like black culture which i think for me the more relevant is like what is what is my culture that i affiliate with like i think of eritrean culture mm-hmm. um i i have to think about it in moments like i have scenes in my head right i think the very first scene that always comes to mind when i think of eritrean culture is like eritrean weddings you know that that gets me super excited um and we usually have a two-part wedding and there's it's, it's always like the day one is a western part you know show up in the nice suit and then day two is like show up in the nice cultural uh you know clothing and what have you and it's always at a community hall like they always do like the first day like nice big banquet hall very formal and the second one is always at like a community hall you know the the mothers and the families are the ones making the food themselves it's not catered and I think of that scene of like the music, the kids just kind of running around, everyone dancing, like speakers are way too loud. It's probably not safe for anyone's hearing <laughs> you know, money being slapped on people's foreheads as they dance. Like I, that, the, the smell of, of, of Sua, like the, the beer that we, we drink, like, I, you know, the coffee ceremony, all of that stuff, that, that's a really important scene. I, I think even when I was a kid, though, as well, growing up in America, I think the idea of, of, of playing outdoors as being something important. I just remember we'd play soccer all the time, just like, really shitty streets <laughs> like you, if you fell <laughs> you're just done you're just you're out of commission you know who just jaggedy rocks and gravel but like the idea of of freely playing outside within even a space that isn't totally meant to be playing but you still are capable of doing that and no one really minds nor cares but if they actually takes joy in just seeing that kind of um, happiness take part. I think that's, I think that's really rich and beautiful, mm-hmm. right? Like if I think about my experience growing up, that experience of just like, Oh, there's a soccer game happening here. So you try to nudge on the sidewalk and you see, and then maybe you engage and kick the ball back. I, I think those kind of moments, um, that, that means a lot. Um, you, you never really see that here in Canada that much because it's like regulations and whoever, I mean, you would just get it. I feel like you would immediately yeah, permit for every, every permit. Like you'd get in shit for that. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, if not, at least someone calling on you, but, but I think that that's really fun. Um, and, and also, and also just like lots of different little stories. I don't know that, that, that just always. For, for me, there's the way I think I can say black people, regardless of their heritage, the culture, the way we do community, for me is 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 super important and it's one of the things that has made it so difficult for me to find this place home it's so insular it's so like mm-hmm. it's so individualistic and the shout across the street to the neighbor the you know and i haven't been to the states much but what you see on tv anyways of blacks is like that's the kind of culture that you know they have as well um so for me a space where we could just be that freely where like the kids all play together and there's no, you know, we don't have that fear that is here, you know, that <laughs> who are you playing with? I need to know their mother and their, you know, yeah. <laughs> phone number and their, you know what I mean? Um, we yeah. just played, like it was just like the kids, um, you know, and 
every mother on the street was a mother and you know they discipline you parenting <laughs> and you know and the discipline and all of that um and even like when i'm thinking about my own kid i i part of me weeps a little bit that they won't get that you know what i mean like part of me is very conscious of the fact that I will myself and my husband will be kind of the be all for our child, you know, yeah. I think about how I grew up. My parents were there. Sure. But like, they were not like, <laughs> they were not the be all and end all. Like there were times we barely, they were working and they were doing their own thing. And, you know, community was much bigger than, than our nuclear family and our parents. I have pockets of time. I don't even remember my parents being, <laughs> you know, part of it. And it's not in a, Oh my God, I'm scarred way, but it's in a, you know, like they were living life too, right? They yeah. were doing what they were doing. So yeah. Um, yeah, for me, that, that community sense. Um, well, yeah, I was just on that piece and this kind of goes back on going back home. Like I, I, I still very much want to, and I should have clarified, I, I still yearn to go visit Eritrea all the time. You know, whether I would settle there permanently is, is the question that I was getting at. But, you know, I always kind of talk with Tara, my fiance, that like I, I kind of want, I want my kids to kind of experience a similar upbringing to what I had. Because I, I just think that that experience of growing up in, in, in Eritrea where you are at least, you know, for our context, you're really just in a sea of black folks, right? <laughs> in Rumi, it sounds like they're a bit different in terms of the schools and experiencing and whatnot, but like you're really just surrounded with um, black folks. And I, and I want them to have that kind of experience. I know they are going to have to wrestle with the fact that, you know, because Tara, my fiance, she's Persian, that they're going to, they're going to look different and that they're probably going to, have a very Western and foreign upbringing that's going to feel immediately foreign to other um, people and will, will, will only be seen as still foreigners no matter how long they live there for. Um, but I want them to kind of have that similar experience of, of growing up there. Cause I, I think there's just, yeah, there's, there's something rich. I think you get from that. I'll give you a funny story. Um, when we were traveling home for our wedding in 2017, my nieces and nephews from here, um, we, we, we all went. And it was for them their first time going home, some of them. Oh, wow. How old were they? Um, they must have been between 11 and, and, and 5. They're, they're really young. Um, mm -hmm. All of them had been with their babies, but that didn't count. And my, my niece, she, was, she must have been 8, 7 or 8 at the time. Um, we arrive in Addis and you guys know the Addis airport. Like, oh, oh. <laughs> about you. like you're either losing luggage, your passport, people, like you just need to have your wits about you and get yourself onto the plane, you know? They don't even announce them sometimes. It's like, your plane is leaving. It's like, <laughs> so, you know, downstairs in some basement. <laughs> So we're trying to navigate Addis and we're like, kids, you know, pick up your things, let's go. And this girl is like, she's completely slowed down. She's standing there. She's just looking around like, like, so you need to like, like, you know, come on, we need to move. And she froze. She froze. And we're all screaming at her like, and she says, is this where all the brown people are? And, you know, she's looking around and I realized she had never seen this many black people yeah. in her life. She was... She didn't know what to do. She was just like looking around like, mommy, there's so many brown people, <laughs> you know? And, you know, we, we decided to like stop and be like, okay, you know what? We have to, we have to let the kids take this in. 
Like <laughs> we can't, you know, and that was their whole experience of going home. They couldn't believe it. The only brown people they knew um, is their immediate family and like a few aunties who come and visit mm-hmm. at home. But they'd never imagined a world where everyone around you could be black. You could walk into a, a, a store and it's black people. <laughs> you could walk into, you know what I mean? And it was overwhelming and confusing for them and, and then really fun, <laughs> you know, at some point. So, um, yeah, when I think about kids and, and all of that, for me, being not being shocked by seeing people of your color, I think would be a utopia for me, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> for my kids um, in that sense. And the other thing for me, one of the things I loved about home the most, and my husband laughs at me sometimes so much, is is nightclubs and parties, man. Like, I'm such a party person, and <laughs> here, I don't do it because I don't like the music, and I don't like <laughs> dance. Like, it's not the way that I, you know what I mean? But when I was at home, being in a club and hearing all Black music, all African music, um, you know, seeing us all dressed the way we dress, dancing the way we dance. Guys, like, you have to pull me out of clubs. Like, <laughs> no, you are a problem. <laughs> I know, it's problematic, but, you know, because um, I, I, when I moved back, I moved back by myself, and then my husband joined me later, and my mom was like, you come, you're a married woman, you come here. <laughs> in the morning, right? And she's like, just wait till your husband comes, he's gonna fix all this. He comes, and he's like, he's up till 6 a.m. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, it sounds silly, but being able to, to dance and express and to listen to your own music is so, it impacts you so much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Design Unmuted podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate and tell your friends about it. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. You can find me on Instagram at Ramesha Design Unmuted. And also on my website at www.rameshadesign.com slash design unmuted. The track you hear is Under the Sun by singer-songwriter Kafaye and produced by Ozenit, Kiga, and Sanjay.